Amen. So you've seen folks who have taken video cameras around cities and they've asked people questions for whatever interview, whatever assignment they're doing, and bringing that assignment back and then sharing it with a group of people. Well, one group went around New York City not too long ago and they asked the question, who is Jesus? Uh, Random people, all walks of life, and several of the responses I have for you here It was just a clip-by-clip montage there. One said, uh, Jesus is simply a historical figure. Another responded by saying to, who is Jesus? I don't know. One person said, I think he was just a normal person. Someone else, he was a selfless person. A lady and her friend responded by saying, he was a marketing genius because he got a lot of people to believe him. A man sitting on a bench who was feeding pigeons, they were dancing around on his shirt. Uh, He said, if David Copperfield were in the day of Jesus, he would be Jesus. I'm not sure what that means, but uh, maybe that's what you say when you have pigeons jumping around on your shoulders. And still yet another lady said, he was God's son, but so was Gandhi. So was Muhammad. We're all God's children. There's a lot of responses to the question, who is Jesus? A variety of responses. Today we're in chapter 3, and it's as though Mark has interviewed three different groups of people. We're going to see this as we move through. The crowd is definitely there, but the crowd is almost like an usher, if you will. An usher who is bringing people forward. And so we see three different people here. There's going to be the demons guess they're not people, they're beings. Uh, then we see Jesus' family, and then we see religious leaders. And all three of them give their answer of who Jesus is. So that's going to be the first three quarters of the sermon, interacting with their answers and then looking at Scripture. And then our last section is going to be the question, who is my family? So the two points of the sermon are actually questions that will help us go through it. The first one is, who is Jesus? And then the second point to the sermon is simply, who is Jesus's family? All right, so let's just get right to it with the first question, point number one, who is Jesus? Verse seven, as Jason was reading, it says that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. So he's in the northern region, up around the Sea of Galilee, town of Capernaum in that area, and that's where most of his ministry is happening right now. But you see in verse 7 that a great crowd follows him. And we don't hear much about the crowd in this section. It's not about the crowd. It's about individuals who are in the crowd. You see that this crowd is from all over. They're from that present area from Galilee. Judea is further south. Jerusalem, definitely a city down south, kind of parallel with the Red Sea. That region called Idumea. Uh, That's even further south from the Dead Sea. Tyre and Sidon are along the Mediterranean coast. So just to get a geographical location, Jesus is up north along the Sea of Galilee. And it's as though his news about himself has spread like tentacles or like a web over the region. And people are coming from all different areas to Jesus. But notice why they are coming in the middle of verse 8. It's when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So the reason why the crowd is coming 
is because they're hearing about the works that Jesus is doing. And we've seen this in chapter one and chapters one and two, where he was healing demon-possessed people in the synagogue. He was healing sick people. He was healing the leper, the paralytic. Last week, we saw a man in the synagogue who had a withered-up hand, and Jesus healed him. So news has traveled quickly all over this region, and people are coming out, but they're not coming out for his message at this point. They're not coming out to hear what he has to say yet. They're coming out to be healed. And so in verse 9 and 10, it tells us that the crowd is so large, and you can imagine Jesus now along the Sea of Galilee, literally on the shore. You can think like Michigan, just for a visual reference in your mind. And the crowd is pressing on him further and further because they like what he is doing, not what he is saying yet. And so you can maybe imagine that people are bringing their sick family members or their friends or they themselves are sick and need healing. And everybody wants to press closer and closer to Jesus because they know he can heal him. Now, imagine this for just a moment. Maybe this will help you put yourself in Jesus' shoes. Um, When I was in high school, I went to a Minnesota Vikings football game up in Minneapolis there. And you, at the end of the game, of course, you go out of the stadium, and now you're on the concourse. But there's a bottleneck effect that happens in all corners of that stadium because everybody has to get to one certain location. They have to get to the escalators. And so people are jostling with each other, kind of zippering into line, all trying to get to that one point. And there's that sort of shoving and pushing lightly that is taking place. Here's the crowd who is coming to Jesus. And as we've seen, they want Jesus to touch him. And so if if you're at that Minnesota Vikings game at the end, you can imagine yourself sitting in a chair right next to the escalator, but you have tickets to the escalator. And everybody is coming up saying, I need a ticket. I need something from you. I need, I need, and, and they're all focused on you. And you can imagine just how you get pressed back more and more. And so Jesus says, hey, get a boat ready because this crowd is a little too much. We might need to set sail and get away. Now, he doesn't do that. The crowd is pressing in. And in verse 11, we have the first answer to who Jesus is. Look what it says in verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Now, these are people who are possessed by unclean spirits. And... We have seen some of this activity earlier in chapter 1 where the man in the synagogue threw himself down on the floor and caused a scene. So these people that are coming to Jesus, yes, some are physically needing uh, help, whether it's leprosy or fevers, that kind of thing. But some are demon-possessed, and they are crying out this statement as soon as they come up to Jesus, you are the Son of God. Now, What's going on here? Why would demons cry out to Jesus, you are the son of God? Some scholars think that as demons approached an individual, if they named that person, they were like having a mastery or a power over them. 
So, you know, you can maybe imagine yourself, just to get our minds thinking, in a place where you didn't want to be and there's a person who looks demon-possessed and they've never known you and all of a sudden they say, Nate Burkholz, like that. And that's kind of intimidating. You'll see that in a lot of commentaries. I don't think that's what's going on, so I probably just wasted a lot of time by sharing that with you. What I think is going on here is something altogether different because of the way that you see demonic activity in Scripture. Uh, You find fear and trembling from the demons towards Jesus. In chapter 5, go ahead and take your Bible and turn to chapter 5. Look at verse 7. Jesus sails across the Sea of Galilee. There's that maniac from Gadara who greets him on the sea shore. And texts say that he's been cutting himself. Some say that some of the Gospels describe him as having no clothes on. So he's quite a sight here. Uh, Back it up to verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, that's Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, that is the demons who are named Legion. They're saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. So here's what you see. You see demons actually in submission to who Jesus is. They're begging Jesus to not cast them out or cast him out. They recognize that they have met their match. In James chapter 2, verse 19, the Bible says that even the demons believe and they tremble. And then you think about this passage from Philippians 2, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow where? Knees in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So I think that what we have here is a window into the demonic world, and they are recognizing Jesus for who he truly is. He is the Son of God. And they know that when they are in his presence, they are overpowered and can be forced into whatever submission he wants them to be in. You can picture it this way, that Jesus is like a powerful police commissioner showing up in a ghetto that's been controlled by a gang of 14-year-old boys who have wreaked havoc. And this commissioner shows up with his boys. And these 14-year-olds are no match when the commissioner and his boys come into the ghetto. The demons are no match, and Jesus is stepping into their territory. He's coming as a mighty conqueror, and his strength extends over the demonic realm. And we know that he's coming in as as a conqueror because of the name that they give him. Jesus, you are the Son of God. And this is not some sort of flimsy label that they've made up. The demons, they know theology. They know what this means. So Son of God language, where does that come from? It comes from Psalm chapter 2. Listen to this text from the Old Testament. The Lord said to me, from Psalm 2, verse 7, 
The Lord said to me, you are my son. There's the sonship language. Today, I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, here's the response. Kiss the son. Kind of like a king and his hand is to be kissed out of respect. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the language of sonship, one of authority, one of being a king. And we're not just talking about some sort of physical realm here. What the demons are recognizing is that Jesus' authority and kingship extends into the demonic realm. And this has been one of Mark's themes from the very beginning. uh, Mark 1, verse 1, you are the Christ, the Son of God. The Father speaks from heaven at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. And the demons are saying, this is the Son of God from heaven. This is the King from heaven. And so you have this correct answer from the demons on who Jesus is. They're correct because they have some theology to them. It doesn't lead them into repentance, but they know the facts. Now, back in chapter 3, the demons are answering, you are the son of God. They are acknowledging his authority and power. And then in verse 12, it says that he, that is Jesus, strictly ordered them not to make him known. Um, Some of your passages might say he strongly ordered them not to make him known. And again, this has been something that's going on when Jesus has encountered the demons. Early in Mark 1, verse 24, where that guy was in the synagogue, the demons threw him down. After Jesus cast the demon out, he said to the demon, be silent and come out of him. Later on in chapter 1, verse 34, he was casting demons out and he would not permit them to speak. Why is Jesus with this great crowd around him, with all of their needs, and maybe here's a demon-possessed person whom Jesus is healing and casting out the demon, and at that same moment, he's saying, you are the Son of God. Why is Jesus all of a sudden saying, be silent, don't speak? Why would he keep that knowledge back from them? Because we're the readers here, and we're seeing what Mark is communicating. Mark has already told us he is the Son of God. So why in Jesus' ministry, even though as the readers, we get to see this from the very beginning, why in Jesus' real-time ministry, when he is the Son of God, he is commanding the demons who have the right answer about who he is to basically shut their mouths? Why is he keeping that news back? Well, keep in mind that Demons are never going to use the truth for the glory of Christ. Like, they're not going to be using this in such a way that advances Christ's cause. Jesus is slowly revealing himself to the people in such a way where they can handle it and respond to him. Remember, why are the crowds there? The crowds are there because they love what they see Jesus doing. And son of God language has this rich kingship language. They are expecting the king to come. They're expecting him to deliver them from Rome. 
So all of a sudden, if they're saying, here's the king who is here, the son of God, well, let's get busy with throwing these shackles off from Rome and setting up our kingdom. But was Jesus there to accomplish that purpose? He wasn't there to accomplish that purpose. And Mark unfolds this throughout his gospel, especially when you get to chapter 10, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was going to deliver people, but first they had to understand that this deliverance was for the purpose of delivering them from their sins. That's what Jesus was doing here. He wasn't going to be a genie in a bottle for them. Here's the son of God. Here's the one who can get, give us what we wish. His end game was to bring the truth about deliverance from sin. And you see a little picture of this even in chapter 2, this order that he's going in. Deliverance from sins. Remember the paralytic? He's lowered through the roof. We expect him on the front end of that to say, okay, stand up and walk, you're healed, get out of here. You know, in nicer ways than that, but you know what I mean. What is the first statement that he says to that man who's lowered down through the roof? Is it physical healing? It's spiritual healing. He says, your sins are forgiven you. That's what that man needed more than anything, and that's what the crowds need more than anything. Now, of course, after he pronounced that, your sins are forgiven, the religious leaders thought he was blaspheming God, and then Jesus performed a miracle to validate his message. Jesus is here to deliver a message. It's a message of deliverance from sin. So, here are the demons, and they're asking the question, we're asking the question, who is Jesus? And the demons do answer it correctly. He is utterly unique because he is the Son of God, the one whom our lives should be in submission to and bowing down to. So that's answer number one. There's a little transition that takes place in verses 13 and following where Jesus goes up to a mountain he calls whom he desires to himself. He goes up onto the mountain and he points the 12 disciples. There's three characteristics about these 12 disciples. I'm not going to spend much time. It's that they are going to be with him. They're going to walk with him through his ministry. They're going to preach for him. And then they're going to cast out demons. I mean, that's the hook that I think Mark is including here so that we see 7 through 12 connected to this naming of the disciples, Jesus' ministry is continuing. But there's a second group that comes up and answers the question, who is Jesus? And that is his family in verses 20 and 21. It says, then he went home and the crowd gathered again. So there's the crowd. Um, they gathered in such a way so that they, that is Jesus and the disciples, could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. All right, so here's the crowd again. Before they were kind of pressing Jesus up against the sea, he may have needed a boat to hightail it out of there if it got that pushy. Now he's at a house. Uh, I know it says he went home. Some of your versions say he was at a house. It's probably more accurate there. The crowd is gathering in so tightly here that they're not able to get food to Jesus and the disciples. And you're, you're probably thinking now, how can that even be? This is an unusual situation, but 
Imagine so many people pressing in, and their greatest need is, I just want to be healed, and I know this guy can do it. And there's a third person in line knowing that Jesus hasn't had breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and he's saying, but I'm third in line. He can wait for just two more. I'm third in line, and there's always a third person in line because we always want people healed. Like, we're desperate, And here is Jesus who is willing to be there continually healing people throughout the day. But his family who loves him is saying, this is not good for our brother. By the way, Jesus had brothers here. So he was not just a single child here. Mary would have had more children. So here they are showing up. And their response to Jesus is, he's worked himself to death. He's out of his mind. This is getting out of control. Perhaps it's a situation like this where there's a doctor in a war zone and they've made a makeshift hospital and all of these dying people are coming to the doctor and the needs keep coming in and coming and coming and the doctor keeps working because the need continues to be present and you'll see the doctor pushed to the limits with exhaustion and sleeplessness beginning to take its toll. And doctor hasn't slept for 24 hours, and on day two, someone mentions, you need a break. But the doc says, how can I take a break? More people are coming in. And by day three, he's so exhausted, yet keeps pushing forward. And somebody might step in and say, I'm going to force you to take a break because this is taking a toll on you. You've lost your mind. You can't think properly anymore about what's taking place here. So we are going to do this for your good. I think that's the nature of Jesus' family. Jesus, you've, you've lost it. You're not thinking correctly anymore. So who is Jesus to his family? He's a man who has gone too far. Like this whole ministry thing, this whole message that you have, you've gone too far. And this is often the view of people concerning Jesus and his followers. You think about when Paul was preaching to Festus. Festus snaps back and says, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And this is what's been the view for so many Christians. Perhaps it's been the view of people looking at you. Maybe you have unbelieving family members and they hear about your loyalty to Jesus. And the questions are, what? You actually believe that fairy tale stuff? You believe that there was a man who came down from heaven, who was born of a virgin, who went to the cross to bear the penalty for your sort of wrong things that you've done? Aren't you goody two-shoes anyway? Aren't you out of your mind? Well, no. When you've come to Jesus and you've come to know the truth, you can see that the world has lost its mind. I mean, the message of forgiveness is such a beautiful message. It's such a comforting message. The message of God's love and of his glory, the message of the Bible is the most sane truth that causes people to sleep at night. If you don't have this truth right now, what are you doing in life? I mean, what are you thinking about possible World War III, chemical weapons? I mean, if you don't have this truth, 
what do you sort of suppress all other things with so that you can sleep at night? But here's the reality that Jesus has come. And if you're a seeker here this morning, Jesus has come into this world to deliver you from your sin and from your guilt of sin. He lived the perfectly obedient life, and his life is offered to you as a gift to be received by faith. He willingly takes the punishment that you deserve for your sins and gives his life as a gift to you. And all you do in faith is say, Jesus, I believe it. And what's going on in that moment is that God is at work in your heart, opening up the eyes of your heart to see this is not insane. This is true. And if that's you this morning, even right now in the quietness of your heart, you can just be saying, God, I I believe this truth. Now, let me just point you to a few verses that show us Jesus is not out of his mind, but he is walking in the truth. John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh, that is Jesus. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. He was full of grace and truth. This is Jesus. He is the truth. John 1, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then there was Jesus' friend, Thomas. John chapter 14, verse 6, Thomas, the disciples, actually at this point, were having a hard time knowing, just Jesus, what is your message? How can we be sure that we have life in you? And Jesus said this, he said, I am the way. And I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Was Jesus out of his mind? Had he lost it? If he had lost it, he's not the truth. You can't go through him. In that moment, Jesus was not out of his mind. He was still walking in the truth, and he is the source of truth. So two questions, or two people who have asked the question, who is Jesus? The demons. We see that from that, he is the son of God who exercises power over the world. His family, Jesus, you're out of your mind. As we look at texts of scripture, we say, no, he is completely true in all that he says and he is doing. To find Jesus is to find truth. And then there's a third group of people that weigh in on this. The demons, the family, and here's the scribes. The scribes answer here. So this is verse 22. Um, The crowd is still there. And notice where the scribes have come down from. They've come down from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is south of Galilee, but it's elevated in the mountains. So they've kind of come down from the mountain to Galilee. And who is Jesus to these scribes? Verse 22. Here's their answer. He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. I mean, what an attack. Here's their view of who Jesus is. He is in league with Satan. And keep in mind, these religious leaders have come to believe that Jesus can do amazing things. We saw this last week, the man with the withered hand. They were waiting to see if Jesus would heal that man on the Sabbath. They've accepted that Jesus has these powers but they don't want to surrender to his message. The miracles validate his message. So now if they don't agree with the message, they have to somehow invalidate the miracles. They have to say, 
these aren't miracles from God. So what do they say? They say, these miracles, him casting out demons, is actually because he's one of them. He's in league with Satan, the father of lies. Now Jesus responds with truth here in verse 23. He called them to him and said to them in a parable, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. All right, so if you think that I'm of Satan, and Satan is sending demons out to afflict these people, and I'm casting demons out, Satan and I are working against each other, and there's a civil war going on in the demonic world. That makes no sense at all. And it doesn't make any sense. Jesus can't be in league with the demons. So Jesus goes on in verse 27 to actually explain what is taking place. He says in verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house. And when he uses that phrase, strong man's house, he's talking about Satan's domain. And plunder his goods... No man can enter that strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first, the he there is Jesus, unless Jesus first binds the strong man and then indeed he may plunder his house. So here is Jesus saying, I have come and I have exercised power and authority over Satan and I am invading his territory right now and I'm plundering his house. I'm doing with his territory what I want to do with his territory. I'm taking it all away and setting people free from Satan's demons. And you see, this is a blossoming promise through Scripture, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, where God made a promise to Satan that an offspring from Eve would come. And here he is. And he said to the serpent, Satan, you will bruise his heel. You'll nip him on the heel, but Satan, he will crush your head. And Jesus right now is showing that his foot is on the head of the serpent and applying pressure to it. I love the picture that John presents in, John, in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. Look at how Jesus is plundering the house of Satan, invading his territory and exercising authority over him. Look at this picture that John gives to us. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Who is this dragon? That ancient serpent from Genesis 3, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And look at the imagery here that John gives to us. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not even their lives, even unto death. This imagery of Jesus throwing down 
this serpent and this serpent landing on the earth and with a thud and you can see a dust cloud coming up around him. The picture doesn't stop there. I didn't include it in the screens, but Revelation chapter 20, there is this picture here where Satan is cast into the lake of fire. It says that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. And the point is that God defeats Satan. So these religious leaders are standing up and saying, you're actually in league with Satan. (laughs) And you look back at scripture and you're like, no, the son of God is coming and he is going to crush the head of Satan. That's who Jesus is. He is the victor. Now, verses 28 and 29, we go into what's called the unpardonable sin. I'm going to save that for next week. But what we've seen up to this point is that the worst of beings, the demons, are looking at Jesus as the revered son of God. Then Jesus' family, they say he's crazy, but we find the Bible saying that he's actually not crazy, he's full of truth. If we ask the religious leaders, the cleaned up group of people who Jesus is, they say he's of Satan, but the Bible presents Jesus as crushing Satan under his heel, slamming him down and casting him into the lake of fire forever and ever. And so you have these three answers to the question, who is Jesus? And what we've done is we've looked at the answers and then we've gone back and we've said, okay, here is the son of God. Here he is who is full of truth. Here he is as the one who defeats Satan forever and ever. Who is Jesus? He's powerful. He's truthful. He's a victor. But Jesus has a question. And that's where this passage closes. Verse 31, it says, His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him, and they called him. Okay, so it's possible that he's still at this house, and they weren't able to get to him. In verse 32, a crowd is sitting around him, and the crowd says to Jesus, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answers this crowd. The question has come forward through the crowd. And he answers them with a question. And he asks this. Who are my mother and my brothers? And the way the text is written implies that there was a long silence after that. A pause for reflection. Jesus asks them and looks at their faces. Who are my mother and my brothers? And on one hand, your mind goes, well, biologically, we know that you're from Nazareth. You're you're Jesus, you know, the son of Joseph, son of Mary, that clan up there. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. Look what he says in verse 34. Here's the crowd that is sitting around him listening. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. Here they are. Who's my family? You, you, you are my mother. You are my brothers. He goes on to say this in verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister 
and my mother. And you ask the question, okay, Jesus, you're saying now that this family that you belong to, you're not really emphasizing your biological family. He's not. He's emphasizing a spiritual family here. And the question then is, so who belongs to the spiritual family? Who is Jesus' family? Who is his mother? Who is his brothers? Who is, are his sisters? And he says, it's those who do the will of God. And we ask the question, well, what is the will of God? It's what Jesus has said earlier in Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Here's the will of God. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from the pattern of life that you were living before now and turn to Jesus and follow him and believe in him as your Savior. This is the family of God. This is whom Jesus belongs to, and this is who belongs to Jesus. And so here you have this thought that is wrapping up chapter 3 here. Who am I? Do I belong to to Jesus' family or not? Who is Jesus? Here's the demon's response. Here's the family response. Here's the leader's response. And Jesus is like, that's all good and dandy, but I need to turn to you and ask you a question. Who are you? Whom do you belong to? And the answer is, if I belong to Jesus' family, it's because I've repented and believed in the gospel. Romans 8, verse 29, talks about Jesus' family. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus is our brother. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one, one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. This is Jesus' family. And you think about that family motif. You belong, Christians. You belong to a family. You are secured in a family. You are loved by a family. You will be provided for in this family. Are you in the family of Christ? And if so, all of these benefits are yours because you are part of Christ's family. Biological family is a wonderful gift. To have a mom, to have dad, to have siblings. It's wonderful. Chris and I, we have four children. Three of them are sitting here. One's down the hallway. And we love our kids. We love seeing them play together. And they can do that sometimes. Play together, that is. There's laughs. There's tears. There's smiles. There's conversations. There's games. There's puzzles. There's meals. We love it all. One of the regularly, regular practices we have with our family is prayer at night. The two boys go down a little earlier, and I pray with them. And then the girls stay up later, and they're at that age right now where Chris and I are just, like, keeping our eyelids open with toothpicks, wishing that they would go to bed sooner. But, you know, that's just part of the nature of family and them getting early, older. They come up late. We have a time of prayer together. Then Chris and I, we're out of there. We go to bed and we pray together. In all of those prayers, one of the consistent themes that I think you'll hear is that we are praying for their hearts. We realize that, yes, they are from our bloodlines. They are part of our family. But that's not ultimate. 
Like family, biological family is a wonderful thing, but we're praying that God will guard them with the truth and that God will keep them close to him. Because we know that for our children to be part of God's family is far greater than them to live in a biological family, reject Christ, and go to hell forever and ever. Who is my family? It's those who do the will of God. It's those who repent and believe in the gospel. And what a gift this is. So for some of you, you're looking at family because maybe your parents are gone. Maybe you've lost parts of your family. Perhaps your family has rejected you. And there's this element which Jesus is looking around at the crowd and he's saying, okay, you've repented and believed. You've repented and believed. You are part of my family. And that's a gift. But then it also has a responsibility, doesn't it, that the family would be family. That the spiritual family would be more than the biological family. That collectively we would come around each other and say, okay, I see that need, I see that burden. Let's follow Christ together. As Christians, you've been brothered or sistered or even mothered into this family. And I hope that you can walk away from this knowing that wherever you're at in life, either biological family, that God loves you. He's brought you into his family. You are one of his. Who is Jesus? He's the son of God. He's the truth. He's the victor. And out of his kindness, he's opened up the door for us to be part of his family.